I think we should rename our church the Fertile Valley Church of Christ. <laughs> I, I love this day and I love this church and parents and especially new parents, I want you to know we want to bless you. God wants to bless you as you raise these new image bearers. Um, this is a daunting calling and it's an important calling, the most important calling you have. And this church wants to walk alongside you as you disciple and raise your kids in the Lord. So when I was a freshman in college, I'd grown up homeschooled my entire life, and that meant that I had never been to a classroom. I'd never been in class. And about four weeks into my first ever semester, I was in this English class taught by Miss Jewell, and she did a pop quiz, which I didn't know was a thing. And so we have this test in front of us, and she's wanting answers, and I don't have answers. And then I look and I see the desk in front of me, this woman, this, uh, this girl's writing down her answers. And I like her answers a lot better than I like mine. And so I took them. I just wrote all her answers down. And um, then I stewed for the rest of class in my homeschool guilt. For like 30 minutes, I just feel so guilty. I knew I'd cheated. And I went up to Miss Jewel after class. And I said, I'm so sorry I cheated on this test. And she was not used to, you know, confession in real time. And so she thought about it for a second and she said, I'm going to give you a zero on this. And if if I ever catch you cheating again, don't ever let me catch you cheating again. And I was like, yes, ma'am, you will never catch me cheating again. (laughs) And she didn't. So... (laughs) I don't know what you think of when you think of tests, but every one of us go through tests on a pretty regular basis, and they're painful. Tests are stressful, tests are hard, but they reveal and expose and motivate growth. So without tests, we don't learn. Tests show what you know, and as in my case, what you don't know. And they show you where you need to work on things. So, for example, if you don't have fair tests, if you don't have honest tests, and if you don't have regular tests, you're not going to learn something like chemistry. You just won't learn it. It's not going to happen. So we're continuing our series on the Gospel of John, and today we're going to get a look at Jesus trying to grow the people who are following him, his 12 disciples, and he does it by testing them. And in this story, if you grew up in church or even around church, you've heard this story. It's a story about a miracle, and it's a story about food. It's a food miracle. Now, I love miracles and I love food, so I love food miracles. And this is the only story, the only miracle that is told in all four of the stories of Jesus or the Gospels um, outside of the resurrection. It says something really, really deep and profound about who God is. So, at this point in the Gospel of John, Jesus is really popular I mean, he's doing stuff like turning water into wine at weddings. He's, uh, you know, healing the sick. He's going around preaching about the kingdom of God. And he's really, really popular. And this is a turning point in Jesus' ministry. A lot of people, the majority of people who had followed Jesus after this story, stop following Jesus. And he does this for a reason. He's going to test his disciples and the broader 
crowds that are following him. And most people do not pass this test. So here's the scene. Because he's so popular, because he's doing so many things and saying so many wonderful things, people are attracted to Jesus. And at this point, there are 5,000 men, not uh, just people in general, but 5,000 men who are following him. And John tells us, that's the only gospel that tells us that this is 5,000 men. He's got a reason for telling us. We'll get into it later. But they're all around Jesus out in the wilderness. And his disciples are like, what are these people going to do for food? And that's when Jesus gives them... Up until this point, the disciples have been watching Jesus' miracles. But now Jesus is going to involve them. So if you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 6, starting in verse 3. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with His disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. When Jesus looked up and saw the great crowd coming towards Him, He said to Philip, How are we going to feed these people? Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he had in mind already what he was going to do. So he's giving this opportunity to the disciples, this 12 disciples, to let them participate in this. But as soon as he does, they collectively lose their mind. They're like, why are you looking at us, Jesus? We can't turn water into wine. I don't know if you've noticed, but we're not going around praying for the sick. He's, he's giving them a chance to move from being a bystander to being an active participant in his ministry and gives them an opportunity to experience him in a whole new way. But in this test, initially, they lose their mind. So in verse 7, Philip answered, It would take more than a half year's wages to buy enough just not to feed them but just for enough people, to, for everyone to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will they go among so many? And so the young boy, they ask him for his food. He gives them to him. And by the way, as a father of five and our youngest is seven, I think this is one of the greatest miracles in the Gospels. That a little boy shares his food. He, so the um, little boy gives him his food. Jesus blesses it and feeds all these people. And there's tons of food left over. Now, if you didn't grow up in church or hearing this story or seeing it on flannel graph or whatever, this would be a really odd thing. You would see this as odd. Like up until this point, Jesus is doing really um, amazing things. He's healing people who are about to die. He, He's, you know, just healed a man who's lame for 48 or 38 years. And then this? Why this? Like these people are going to be hungry again, like soon. Jesus does not do so many. There are so many things when God came as a human that were left undone and unfinished. Why this? Well, the Gospel of John calls this one of the seven signs of Jesus. And if you think of miracles, of what Jesus does as Him primarily trying to show off His power, you're going to misunderstand Jesus. Because honestly, couldn't you think of better miracles to show off His power? Like guys, see that, that mountain? It's moved. Or see that tree? Fireball. Or watch this, I'm going to make Judas spontaneously combust. But Jesus doesn't do what you and I would do with this kind of power. 
Instead, he's not trying to just show us he's powerful. He's trying to show us the nature of his power. Like we talked about last week, these are signs. And signs point to something, a coming future, a coming reality. Jesus feeds the multitudes to point to a day where there will be no more hunger. He's trying to show us the nature of his power and the mission of what he's going to do in us through us, and in this world. Every time Christians have fed hungry people in the name of Jesus, they're tapping in to what Jesus did on this day. He feeds 5,000 men plus women and children, and they get as much as they want. And then we read this in verse 14. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who was coming to a world. This is an allusion to a, a verse in Deuteronomy at the end of Moses, one of the greatest leaders in Israel's history. At the end of his ministry, Moses prophesied that there will be another prophet like me. And people have been, look, Jews have been looking for thousands of years waiting for the other prophet like him. And now this man makes uh, all the, uh, turns five loaves into tons of food. And they're like, surely this is the new Moses. This is the new Moses that we've waited for. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. That's why John wants you to know it's 5,000 men. You know, remember what time of year this was? Passover. What is Passover celebrating? God had delivered the Israelite people from what? Say it. Slavery. Slavery where? In? Egypt, an oppressive uh, 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 re- regime that had had its boot on Israel's neck for hundreds of years. They made it, st- kept them in slavery. And now they're thinking Jesus is going to do the same thing. They jumped to a conclusion about Jesus. You've got 5,000 men. They're like, look, we got a general patent. we got a king. He can, he can deliver us. That's exactly what they're thinking. And so Jesus quietly disappears because he's not that kind of king. He's not that kind of savior. He's not going to conform to their job description. And so he quietly withdraws from them, goes to a mountain, and sends his disciples on ahead of him in a boat so he can do this. In verse 18 of chapter 6. A strong wind was blowing. It's the middle of the night. A strong wind was blowing and the waters grew rough. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water. Again, if you grew up in church, you're like, yawn, this is what we know Jesus is doing. Imagine being there. Again, this whole chapter is Jesus testing. How much do you want this? How much do you want me? How much do you want to belong to the kingdom of God? And so, the one who made all things, in him all things were made. There's a storm. And it's not like he's surprised by it. He sent them away to go through this experience. And they're scared. We read in the other Gospels, they're terrified. And then all of a sudden, they see Jesus walking on the water, approaching the boat. And they were frightened. They used to be frightened of the storm. Now they're frightened of this. But he said to them, It is I... Don't 
be afraid. Now, the Greek words, this is so huge, y'all. The Greek word he actually uses when he says, it is I, are two Greek words. Ego am I. Let me hear you say, ego am I. Those words are translated, get this, I am. And if you were on the boat that day as a good Jewish guy, you knew what that was from. That would have been scarier than him walking on the water. Because a thousand years earlier, when God had delivered the Israelites from slavery, he first comes to Moses in a burning bush. And Moses is like, you want me to go stand up to Pharaoh? Who shall I say sent me? And God says, I am. Jesus in this moment is saying in the most explicit way, I am God. I am the one who spoke to Moses from the burning bush. And over and over again in the Gospel of John, seven times, just like the signs, there, Jesus stands up and says, I am statements, which is he's giving us the fuller description of what God is. So in this story, he says, I am the bread sent from heaven. In the a, a chapter later, he's going to say, I'm, I am the light of the world. Then I am the good shepherd. I am the truth, the way, the truth, the life. I am the resurrection. I am the vine. In other words, Jesus is God. If you want to know what God is like, this is what Christians have always believed. Don't start with your abstract ideas of what, uh, you know, impersonal force or, uh, you know, don't start with abstract ideas about the universe. Realize Jesus is showing us the full revelation of who God is. God has always been like Jesus. And the thing that you're afraid of, and I don't know what you're afraid of, but I know we got a lot of fears in here. Maybe it's finances, maybe it's your family, maybe it's, you know, your health. The thing that you're afraid of, in this case, it was the storm. Jesus is not just bigger than, he's walking on it. This is the word picture of what he's going to tell us a few chapters later in the Gospel of John. In this world, you're going to have hard times. But take heart. I have overcome the world and this revelation is only for his disciples. The very next day, they get to the other side of the lake that night. And the very next day, the crowd comes to Jesus again, now on the other side of the lake. And they're first like, when did you get here, Jesus? And he says this in verse 25. When they found him on the other side, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? And Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, you are looking for me not because of the signs I performed. You're not looking for what the signs pointed to, you're here because I fed you. You had your loaves and you had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For God, on Him, God the Father has placed His seal of approval. You're not following the sign. You're only focused on the sign. You're, all you care about is if I can feed you again. All you care about is what's temporary. And does that not start to ring true to you? We approach the Lord often for what's in His hand, not for Him. So we, we say, God, please bless my job. Please bless my career. Please bless my family. Please bless my marriage. Please bless our kids. Please bless our you know, financial situation, whatever it is. And by the way, that's, that's great. 
Keep bringing what you're facing, your anxieties, your concerns. Keep bringing those to God. And yet, if God pays my bills this month, I'm going to have bills next month too. And God is always attentive. God is always caring. That's true. And yet, God is try- Jesus is trying not just to deal with our immediate, urgent needs. He's also trying to deal with the ones we're not focused on. We often come to God asking Him to deal or bless with our temporary circumstances. And Jesus is saying, I see your ultimate problem. And that's what I'm going after. I've come that you would take me. Not just what's in my hand. And to weed out the people who are coming to God with their own agenda. Acting like God is some kind of vending machine that they can just punch the right buttons and get. He says this. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. And whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. All throughout the Gospel of John so far, he's been talking about desire, right? So he says to the Samaritan woman, Are you thirsty? Would you like something that would quench your ultimate thirst? So he says to the man who was lame for 38 years, Do you want to get well? And now he's talking about what every one of us wants... But none of us really pay attention to our own soul long enough to realize what we want is this deep-seated appetite to be satisfied. St. Augustine once said, Christ is the bread awaiting our hunger. And Jesus says, I am that. I am the bread. I am the water. If you come to me, I can satisfy your deepest desires, the ones that are so deep, you're probably used to numbing them. For my Father's will is that anyone who looks to the Son and believes in me shall have eternal life. And I will raise them up at the last day. Very truly, I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna, which means bread, in the wilderness. God provided for the Israelites after slavery when they wandered in the desert for 40 years. Your ancestors, God provided for them every day, just like what you want now. I fed you yesterday, you want me to do it again. And yet, they died. They died with full bellies and they still died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. This, anyone who eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. And people lose their mind. They're so offended. They're so confused. You want us to eat your body? You're, you're saying you're bread? And by the way, this is so bizarre. If, if, if you were inventing a religion and God became a human being and God stands up in front of a crowd of thousands of people, God the human, and says, I am, what would you think the next word would be? I bet you wouldn't pick bread. And not just that. I am bread, the bread of life. And I want you to eat me. Jesus is saying to a group of people that want to make him king. I may be like a king, but kings are not like me. Listen, kings that are headed to a throne, they talk about taking other people's lives. 
I'm talking about giving my own. People who are headed to a throne, they talk about spilling other people's blood. I'm talking about pouring out my own. I'm giving my life for the world. This is not what they expected of their Messiah. Jewish people in the first century, a hundred years earlier, there had been a revolt. They had been under another empire's rule. And Judas Maccabee, Maybe you've heard of this story. Judas Maccabee, the Maccabean revolt. They gathered a group of people just like they're trying to do here. They had revolted and they had won. And to this day, Jewish people, and in the Gospel of John, uh, the next chapter, he's going to be celebrating uh, Hanukkah. The, the remembrance, the festival remembering Judas Maccabean revolt. And that's what they're wanting. That's what they're expecting. And Jesus is saying, I am not that way. This is not gladiator. Jesus isn't sounding like Marcus Aurelius here. He sounds like Martha Stewart here. I am bread. And then Jesus doubles down in verse 55. For my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. And whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. Later on in the Gospel of John, Jesus is going to say, this is what God calls you to disciple. Remain in me and I will remain in you. And you start to see that this thing that we do because Jesus called us to it, this table, is connected to remaining in the life of God. We don't take communion. We receive it. We remain in Him. So John wants to tell this story in a way to remind us about the Israelites being delivered from slavery in the Exodus story. But he also wants to tell us another story. Um, actually, I'm kind of thirsty. Gary Stormont, where are you at, Gary? Gary, will you go get me my water? I have a bottle of water. If you, yeah, thank you. If you could go to my office and get me a bottle of water. So um, there's another story in Israel's history of King David, the greatest king in Israel's history. He's fighting with the Philistines and the Philistines were their neighboring uh, religion or the neighboring tribe. They hated the Philistines. Philistines hated the Israelites. And thank you, Judah. I'll take both bottles. I appreciate it, young man. Um, So the Philistines and the Israelites are fighting. the, The Philistines had taken Bethlehem over, which is where David's hometown was. Thank you, Gary. Uh, they had taken uh, Bethlehem over, and so they're fighting. They're fighting all day long, and, and David is so tired and so thirsty. He actually says to his uh, fellow soldiers, I'm so thirsty, I would give anything for a, a cup of water from the well in Bethlehem. And so his soldiers hear it, and he's got these three mighty men, and they are like, we're going to do something. A king gets what a king wants. And so they fight through the Philistine front lines. They go to the well in Bethlehem. They get a cup of water. Then they go back with a cup of water, and they're fighting the Philistines. (laughs) And then they get it back to David, and this is what David does. Look at this. So the three mighty men broke through the Philistine uh, lines. They drew water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem. They carried it back to David, but he refused to drink it. Instead, he poured it out to the Lord. I want you to see how ungrateful this is. If you're the three mighty men, you're like, what? But we just, you know. And in fact, Judah, my youngest, whom I love, I want you to see. 
how ungrateful this is, right? Because that's what David, and look at why he says, he says, God forbid that I should do it. Should I drink the blood of these men who went at the risk of their lives because they risked their lives to bring it back? David would not drink it. Should I drink the blood? That does not sound surprising to you because you grew up watching vampire movies and eating your steak rare. But Jews, the thing you need to know about Jews, that everybody knew about Jews in the ancient world. They didn't like it, but it was common knowledge. Jews are known for three things. One, they don't work on Saturdays. Two, they don't and will not worship any other gods but theirs. And three, they do not eat or drink anything with blood in it. There's a whole chapter in Leviticus about this. It's a big deal. And that's why David uses this phrase. It'd be like drinking blood. It'd be like drinking their blood. What's he saying? He's saying it would be like profiting from their lives. And here's where the Gospel of John starts to click. Because you start to realize Jesus really is what John is saying. He's the new and better Moses. He is like that prophet, but he is greater than that prophet. He's the new and better King David. He, where David wouldn't profit from the sacrifice of his men's lives, Jesus is saying, I am going to lay down my life so you can profit. He is the new and better David. He's the new and better Moses. He is the fulfillment of your deepest desires and the writings of all wrongs. And he is absolutely, totally shamed and rejected. And he turns to his disciples at the end of this and says, because everybody's leaving. We're not going to eat your body and drink your blood. Everybody's walking away. He goes from being really popular to being untouchable right here. And Jesus turns to them and says, are you scandalized by this too? Does this embarrass you? As well. So I, I read a couple of ar- academic articles about American society a few weeks ago. And one of the interesting things that was kind of posited that I think rings true in my experience, maybe in yours as well, is that currently in America, it goes like this from 2000 to 2010, and before 2000 as well, but from 2000 to 2010. Christianity in America was seen as a beneficial thing to people on the outside of it. They might not believe it, but they're glad you do because you, you know, care for feeding the poor and you know, doing, doing good things. It was seen as beneficial. And then from 2010 to 2020, it was kind of seen on the outside as neutral. You know, I don't believe it, but causes no harm. And then from 2020 to now and, and for who knows how long, it's seen negatively or hostile. And it's kind of embarrassing to be a Christian, at least to people on the outside. Does Jesus scandalize you? Christians throughout history have often been misunderstood and misrepresented. The first Christians, because of this story, were called cannibalists. Because they believed in some mysterious sense. They were eating his body and drinking his blood. They were called for the first couple hundred years as incestuous. 
Because husbands and wives believed they were part of the family of the Lord. Even though they were not blood related, they would call themselves brothers and sisters. And throughout every generation, people on the outside of Christianity have had attacks of Christianity for a lot of different reasons. Today, we're kind of seen as, I don't know, anti-progress or anti-science or or bigots or whatever. I think Christianity is largely misunderstood and misrepresented. Does Jesus scandalize you too? There's a quote from a poem that G.K. Chesterton wrote. I read this about 10 years ago and I, I can't stop thinking of this line. The rest of the world search the scrolls for their fate and fame. But the ones who drink the blood of God go singing to their shame. I think as followers of Jesus, what it means to be a resilient disciple for now and in the future is going to involve having a certain amount of shame resilience. Because this is kind of embarrassing. I mean... To be a Christian in the modern Western world is a bit like having a bowl haircut everywhere you go. Right? I mean, think about just the stuff we believe. We believe in angels and demons and resurrection and donkeys that can talk and waters parting. It's, it's today we are raising our kids. We are living in a world where our faith is misunderstood and misrepresented and often harshly judged. And yet... I think about Peter's reply a few times a week, honestly. Where else can I go? Yeah, this is really hard. Yeah, Jesus, I don't understand. I'm confused. I, I, if I was God, I might do it differently, but I'm not God. That's my problem is when I try to be. And at the end of it, where else can we go? So today is a day as a church that we are blessing our babies. It's also a day where we're acknowledging we are blessed by our babies. And I want to say to these parents of these new souls and bodies, we are going to help you raise your kids in the Lord. We cannot disciple these kids for you, but we can help. And this church has. I'm thinking now of the ways that Paul Carlin and Colin Cheeseman sacrificially serve in doing this and have for years. I'm thinking of the way that our kids, just our personal experiences, the way Tanya Tennyson and Brent Adams have blessed our kids through their disciple-making classes. And there's a, a lot more examples of that. Let me give you today, as I was riding into work this morning, Hannah was with me and I was telling her, I just was mentioning to Gary uh, this story about David's mighty men and him fight, them fighting to get him the cup of water to come back. And as I started the story, Hannah, 11, goes, I know that story. And she tells it. Do you know that story's four verses in Chronicles? That's a deep cut. And I tell you that because this church takes raising kids in the Lord seriously. And we will help. You will not be in this alone. Did you notice that this whole story started off with the faith of a little boy who was, unlike the adults, willing to look at what he had and open his grasp? There is a 
French philosopher who has meant a lot to me over the last two decades. His name is Paul Ricoeur. He talks about in the modern and postmodern world all the cynicism, how we like to see through everything. And Paul Ricoeur says what's needed is what he calls a second naivete. You know, the way faith used to come so easy to you as a child. And, and there was a season in your life where you're like, I was so naive, and maybe you were. But the older you get, the more cynicism kind of weighs, in, weighs on you. And Paul Ricoeur says, what's needed in a healthy adult is to get to a point where they, you can acknowledge, I do not have some kind of God's eye perspective on everything. And in fact, there are some things I'm going to have to just take by faith. He calls that the second naivete. I've found that true in my own life. I do not have all the answers, and I have so many questions. But where else can I go for eternal life. 2,000 years before Paul Ricoeur said we must have a second naivete, Jesus said, you must become like children to enter the kingdom of God. Or in the words of the Gospel of John, you must be born again.